With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning. This is Michael Vanderwoord, and it, it is July 13th. We've got a show, uh, second show of the week. So uh, big, big time. Robin and I are hit our summer peak here, I guess. We're going to do a couple shows this week and a couple shows next week. So hey, Robin, welcome back to drive through again for the second day of July or the second show of the week. How you doing? I am good. I'm I'm loving the uh, the cadence of our shows, and of course we're doing more shows because neither of us can go outside in this heat dome. That exactly. Works, so. Why why leave the air conditioned comfort of our homes when we could be recording podcasts instead of going outside and sweltering in death deadly heat like everyone else is doing? Uh, although I do have to walk sugar occasionally, and so she uh, she goes outside and we both sweat for five minutes and then come back in. But <laughs> that's important because. Dogs need to go out. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> that is self-contained in their universe as cats. So anyway, but I'm allergic to cats. Anyway, good. Glad to have you here. Our guest is waiting for us, and I see her smiling. No one else will ever be able to see that smile. But Liz, welcome. Our guest is Liz Wilk. Wilk or Wilkie? I'm sorry, I didn't ask in the pre-show. That's all right. It's Wilkie. Wilkie. Liz Wilkie from Gusto. Welcome to Drive Through HR. Sorry for botching your name. I hate when that happens. No worries. You'd be like the 10,000th person in my life, whoever made the E silent. So you're in a, you're in a long and illustrious lineage of awesome. people. <laughs> yeah. Join the, join the long line. Okay. Well, welcome to drive through. Um, we're, we're going to talk about uh, a report that you are, were part of uh, preparing and, and co-authoring, I guess. So, but before we get into that and some of the, some of the substance of what we want to talk about today, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us about what you do and what you do for Gusto. Happy to. Hi, listeners. I'm Liz Wilkie. <laughs> I am the chief economist at Gusto, which is an HR benefits and payroll company that serves about 300,000 small businesses and medium-sized businesses in the U.S. across industries. So Gusto runs payroll, administers benefits, has a suite of HR tools to sort of do all of that stuff uh, in one place. And my job is one of the coolest jobs, if I can personally say so, uh, at Gusto. So I lead our data and economics research team, and we do original research using the data that comes in on the platform, but we also do surveys, which is what we did for this specific report on topics of importance for small business owners and their HR practitioners and partners um, so that they can have the kinds of real-time insights that bigger companies have like whole teams and consultants for. Excellent, excellent. And I uh, I will give a shout out because I I, I am among um, the number of, of HR folks and, um, and or consultants, especially with uh, SMBs who have over the years used Gusto. So I'm, I, I always like talking to folks when I'm really familiar with the platform as well. So I'm, I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here with us. Thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. Um, so let's dive, let's dive into this report, um, which, which just came out here within the last month or so. Um, and um the team of economists at Gusto published this, which of course is linked in our 
show page so folks can can get to it. Um, and uh, the focus of it was looking at what the most successful remote and hybrid friendly small medium sized businesses are doing. Um, give us give us the kind of the high level summary really of of what you found uh, to to kick us off, and then we'll dive into some of the specifics. Yeah, happy to. So, I mean, I will say there's been so much in the ether, right? All these headlines about. Do you go back to work? Is hybrid even successful? Can remote create productive environments? And what we really found is that a lot of companies have sort of already made this choice, or if they're going to switch, that's like a long discussion and they're sort of where they are now. Mm. It's not really all that helpful to talk about, should you, or shouldn't you be remote and hybrid? Because honestly, when there were only in-person companies, there were just as many ways to run a crummy in-person company as there were to run a really high-performing in-person company, right? So on on the hypothesis that that's true for remote and hybrid companies also, what we really wanted to do was you just ask small and medium businesses that are actually doing this, right? That have boots on the ground and are living this experience. What are you doing? And how is it going, right? So that we could try to distill some of the best practices that Mm -hmm. are sort of lived and experiential of business owners and HR practitioners who are actually implementing this and what really works. And also what separates companies that aren't so satisfied with their experience with remote hybrid to companies that are really satisfied, right? And feel like they are absolutely crushing it. So that was sort of purpose of this and to really try to distill some practical insights for people that are doing it. And I think I would I would summarize sort of three main points. One is what I like to call voice and choice. So companies that offer remote and hybrid are doing so because they think that they can you know, make it work, but also really because employees value the flexibility that that gives them to integrate their work and life schedules and also the autonomy, right, to choose when they work, where exactly they work, under what conditions they work, as long as the work gets done. So once companies are already there, right, giving employees the choice and sort of really leaning into that seems to be a differentiator for companies that are really satisfied with it, right? Employees become more satisfied. They um, improve retention outcomes. They improve the ability to manage burnout when they really offer employees the choice. Now, hybrid companies in particular, right, do have people come on site and giving mm-hmm. employees the 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 voice right or the input about which days right and to align yeah. to instead of sort of saying top down everybody's in on Tuesdays and Thursdays or everybody's in on Mondays and Wednesdays really allowing employees to have a voice and an input about which days work for them or which days work for their teams mm-hmm. really differentiates right companies that get a lot more employee satisfaction and performance so that's mm-hmm. the first one The second one is uh, clear goals for team and employee and regular manager check-ins. So remote and hybrid companies are way more likely to have check-ins once a week or more between managers and employees. And in-person companies don't necessarily have that high cadence. It's really quite common for remote and hybrid companies to have multiple check-ins a week between managers and employees. And so I think that's because, you know, remote and hybrid employees spend a lot of time making decisions about how to pursue their work, right? That's not necessarily observed. And so you need more frequent check-ins to sort of level set, 
course correct, do any coaching, right? And then sort of send them on their way for another you know, two, three days or a week, but you really need more frequent check-ins with those super clear goals so that employees know how they're supposed to be directing their focus and thinking about, you know, which goals to pursue during all that time that they have sort of unstructured and unobserved and unmanaged, right? Mm-hmm. And then the third one is, um, you know, seems really obvious in hindsight, And I will also say, I think this is true for in-person companies. It just happens a different way is uh, what I call intentional connection building. Yeah. So much personal relationship development, that glue that holds teams together and makes people feel connected and really helps them to show up. A lot of that happens very naturally and unintentionally in in in-person environments and in remote and hybrid environments, it doesn't happen naturally. That there, but there are small habits that really high-performing remote and hybrid companies do, like it's taking you know a few minutes out of every meeting to talk about somebody, uh, to sort of build relationships and mm-hmm. learn about the people on your team, to give uh, shows of appreciation. Right? Hey, you did this great thing on this project. You really delivered. Thank you so much. I know you worked really hard on that. And then also small gifts, right? Uh, At a promotion, at an anniversary, at a birthday, or just to show appreciation. Those really small things that are really intentional really do a lot to build culture. And companies that do those things are significantly more likely to get high-performing teams to say they've maximized the benefits and minimized the negatives of remote and hybrid work and to really feel like they've sort of nailed the cultural piece. Mm-hmm. And what I've I'll lastly say, because I know I've been talking for a long time <laughs> and I want you guys to get in here and ask questions, but what I found really surprising is not that these things matter, but actually how much they matter. So most remote and hybrid companies also bring employees on site. Somewhere between once a year to once a quarter is, you know, where most hybrid and remote companies sit. So they really do feel like in-person connection building is important. But those small virtual day-to-day things uh, are actually as important, especially in remote companies, as those in-person gatherings in differentiating really high-performing remote and hybrid teams from teams that just think they're sort of doing an okay job at Mm. remote and hybrid work. And when you think about how costly it is to bring everybody on site and to do real intentional connection building, Mm -hmm. the combination of those two things together is like really makes all the difference for helping employees feel engaged and motivated. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, the long and short of it. Um, and I mean, that's, that's where we are. (laughs) Yeah. So that's super interesting to me because, um, Rod and I actually both work at, I guess, what I would consider to be small businesses. And Mm -hmm. and like, like, so like where I'm at, we have about a dozen core team members. And then we have about 40 contractors that do work for us, you know, sometimes full-time, sometimes kind of on and off. And then they have their own businesses. I don't know what you guys will look like at human no, Reso, Robin, are you all are you all employees now? Or yeah, you- yeah, we're um, we're at close to forty employees, um, okay. fully distributed. Some are we do have two offices, so we have folks who live near the office. Some go in every day, some go in, you know, hybrid. Um, but we do have two physical offices, but the vast majority of us are are dispersed across yeah, multiple yeah. states. And, so. and we're kind of the opposite in that most of the people that are on the core team all come to a central office here in Oklahoma. 
but we don't have to, right? If you don't want to, you stay home or from home that day. That's cool too. Yeah. Because you know, so so the the reason I bring that up was is because um, I was kind of curious, and this isn't on our script of questions, but a um, couple of things because I think a lot of people who listen to our show will probably be like me. I have what I think what's called an anti library where I download white papers that I intend to read, but then I never do. Right? Same. So I I suspect that that um, you know there will be a few folks like me that that do the same with yours, but. Uh, so I was curious about your uh, two two things pertinent to the study. One is you said you surveyed around a thousand small and medium sized businesses. So first question is, can you tell us what the definition of is in a study of small versus medium sized? And then can you also tell us because I think it'll help people relate to like what you're talking about and how it fits their organization. And then also just out of curiosity, are the thousand people that you talk to are they clients or or was the source some other grouping of people? Yeah. So I'll answer your second question first, because it's the easier of the two. So we surveyed our, what we like to call them customers, um, mm -hmm. but we surveyed our clients um, who are, you know, running payroll on the platform, mostly because they're a really convenient sample for us to use. And, you know, they, you know, they're sort of right there and they're usually pretty willing to tell us exactly how they feel about things that are in the world. Um uh, the, from the size perspective, we actually surveyed sort of three, um, segments. We surveyed one to nine. So really small companies that have one to nine employees. We surveyed companies with 10 to 24 employees. Uh, and then we surveyed companies with 25 to 50 employees. Okay. So that's overwhelmingly the core of, um, you know, what we think of as a smaller, medium sized business. And then up to there, you start getting sort of much more into the like higher end mid market and enterprise solutions, which when you think from like, HR structures, right. Doesn't necessarily translate some of these insights. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so that makes sense to me. So like, yeah, but I, I just, like I said, I think it'll help folks that are listening. Although I think a lot of what you learned, and I know I'm way off the script here, a lot of what you just described in your, you know, kind of your summary is still applicable to larger organizations. Oh, it's yeah. scale. It's not, it's not like that all of a sudden, because you go over 50, this all breaks down and doesn't yield some of the same results. I would, I know you didn't do that study, but I mean, I think we can see that anecdotally from experience. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty easy to take these and then sort of look ahead from a 50 to a hundred person company, or even a hundred to 200 person company and see that, you know, a lot of these principles apply. Yeah. So that was a great summary. Robin, why don't you pick up the next question? Okay. I'll yeah. Um, so Liz, one of the things you mentioned is, is kind of the key learnings is that concept of flexibility and giving the um, employees the choice really, and, and, and hearing their voice in terms of, um, you know, when to come in, especially for the hybrid, right. When to come into the office, when you should hold on site, team meetings, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, uh, is, is flexibility then one of the secrets to boosting performance? And, and, and why is that? And how, how have you seen that that's working for the company surveyed? Yeah. I mean, we've definitely seen that flexibility boosts performance. I mean, that's, that came sort of, that was true for remote companies. And it was also true for hybrid companies, even who tend to have a little bit less flexibility uh, because, you know, they do ask employees to come into the office, you know, yeah. one, one or more days a week. Usually the standard is sort of one to two days a week for the businesses that we surveyed, but 
the small and medium businesses who provide, you know, the sort of maximum amount of flexibility for their specific arrangement, right? So remote companies can offer a lot more flexibility. Hybrid companies have a little less flexibility about location and hours, but the companies that really provide a lot of flexibility are twice as likely to say that they are far above average, right? As their comparators and competitors um, in attracting high quality candidates and managing burnout. And I think those two dimensions actually speak to the mechanism by which that works, right? Mm -hmm. When you are a remote or hybrid worker, you are necessarily blurring the lines between your work, your work life, and all of the other aspects of life that make you a whole rounded person, right? And so when you, when you blur those lines, Offering flexibility allows employees a lot of space and ability to figure out how to integrate those two parts of themselves, right, in a way that works for them, as opposed to, you know, having an employee working remotely, but during these hours and preferably from this location and under these circumstances, it's sort of like allowing people to merge those two parts of themselves, but only under specific conditions and under specific terms. And it's not, um, it doesn't really take advantage of the benefits, right. Of offering that kind of flexibility because the cost is that it's, you know, those lines get blurry. So that flexibility allows employees to sort of manage the lines there. And to be honest, it also, um, and so that helps them to recruit, right. High quality folks. Like also there's a trust issue. Like you trust me to get my work done. Of course, I'm going to get my work done on whatever time I need. And high quality candidates care a lot about just doing the work in the way they want. Mm -hmm. However, you know, whatever needs to happen to get the job done. Right. Um, and then also from a managing burnout perspective, the ability to balance, right? Work and life sort of, you know, as your life comes to you, right? So yeah. your kid gets sick at school, your elderly relative needs some emergency caregiving, right? You know, you, you need to sort of take part of your day out to do something that's related to your other, your, the other aspects of your life, you sort of get that back. And so that really helps to manage burnout, right? Because employees can sort of manage all parts of their life in a way that's just a lot more a lot more flexible for them. So I think that's really the mechanism by which flexibility helps companies achieve that level of performance, right? And to help employees manage burnout because it puts more ability in the hands of the employee to sort of organize their lives in a way that really reduces stress, reduces, you know, fires at home and in the office, but still allows for work to get done. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think one of the, Michael and I can actually both speak to this from personal experience over the last four or five years ourselves, where each of us had um, situations um, where we had to um, devote some time to family members, mm -hmm. and uh, which we've talked about on the show before, but we, um, I, I know both of us found it, you know, having that flexibility, the ability to um, in my case, I, I, you know, I was working remotely, but I was able to you know, pack up, go to California, deal with things. I you still work as I needed to, but be on site to 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 take care of family issues. And and Michael had very similar situations. Now, granted, we're in the type of role we you know been in the types of roles where we've been able to do that. If I was a caregiver in a hospital, I wouldn't you know be able to do that. But um, that yeah, that flexibility because a previous organization I worked at 
pre-pandemic that did, had zero flexibility, um, the, the thought would have been, they would not have been able to handle the thought even of it. Yeah. Well, and, and Robin, you know this, but and I just bring it up because um, it kind of, it's kind of pertinent. It doesn't have to be a small organization. I worked at an organization right. that had 225,000 people. And to Robin's point, I was kind of fortunate that I was in a senior role where I didn't need to be like in a, you know, in an office chair every day or whatever, I could do my work from, a, you know, a lot of different places. So not everybody in the organization I was a part of would get the same flexibility, but they gave it to me, like for my yeah. parents for like a couple of years, you know, if, if I needed to drop what I was doing and go, I could do it. And that was critical to me from a, you know, you talked about burnout and, you know, I can attest that the stress and the, the lack of focus that the kind of thing that I was dealing with in basically the loss of two parents to dementia over a three-year period um, was, you know, devastating. And had they not given me that flexibility, I might've had to quit my job, even though I couldn't really afford to do that. There was nobody yeah. else to do it, you know? So yeah. I don't want to get all off into it because your, your, your project is more <laughs> uplifting, but, but the, 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 the points you're making are very valid and, and, yes. and offer, you know, maybe not tangible pay, but tremendous value to employees yes. that can that can do that. So I think it's really critical. And the point Robin brings up is very on point. Um, you mentioned trust. Um, and I, one of the things that caught my eye in your findings was the fact that, um, and I, I, said, I said in the question notes that this might surprise a lot of listeners because HR has a rather, you know, and, and you guys are a payroll company too, right? So you got to track and you know the laws and how complicated they can be and everything. But one of the things that people don't like is monitoring of employee activity that can be seen sometimes as unnecessary or counterproductive. So you got to clock in and you got to report hours, but do you got to do you got to clock every keystroke and you know that kind of, and I guess there's a degree of tolerance that some of the participants in your study showed. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I. I, I didn't honestly know how this question was going to come out. I mean, I, I, and I will reference the infamous now infamous mouse jiggler yes. to sort of, to sort of be the, the case in point, right. For not only that this software may be, may not actually measure the thing, right. That it's intended to measure. Um, but also that there's like a, there's like a response to that. And I think trust is the sort of really important key here. So what we did found, we asked if companies were using employee monitoring software, and then we uh, cross-referenced that with their actual outcomes and companies that use this software, these types of tools are actually 28% less likely to strongly agree that their company has been able to maximize the positives and minimize the negatives of remote and hybrid work. And they're 16% less likely to strongly agree that remote work has been a positive development for company mm. performance. Mm. Now I'll say that can go both ways, right? You might be monitoring employees because you don't think they're doing a good job with remote and hybrid work, right? Or you're, you might, you know, or you might be getting bad outcomes because you're monitoring them, right? Like that could go both ways. The survey is not specific about that, but either way you want to think about it. I mean, I think that there's what it clearly says is that there is a trust aspect, right? And that helping to build architectures that increase trust and accountability on both sides, right? But one thing that employee monitoring software does is basically tell employees that the employer does not believe that they are really working 
when they are supposed to be working. And, you know, if you tell me that I need you to do a thing, but I don't trust that you are actually doing it right. It sort of erodes the confidence, right. Of that relationship. And then I think you get sort of on the other hand, you know, people react to that with these things like mouse jigglers. Um, but what sort of comes through, and we did a bunch of, um, like interviews with people who were doing remote and hybrid work before we fielded this survey, what came through loud and clear anecdotally in those interviews is that remote and hybrid work requires a high degree of trust mm -hmm. in the organization. It requires trust and it also requires accountability, which is that second thing I mentioned about really clear goals, right? And check-ins against those goals. Um, and it seems that that monitoring software either appears because of an absence of trust that employees are getting that are, you know, getting work done, or it um, erodes trust in the relationship so that other things fall apart, right? Mm -hmm. And then you sort of get these less than optimal outcomes as when you don't have them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another finding that that was also interesting to me in the study was the questions that you asked and you surveyed around the four day work week, which when was that three, four or five years ago or so. And in the UK, they ran a, 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 a test scheme on it with a number of employees. So you surveyed your SMBs in this, in this project about the four day work week. What, what did you find with that? Tell our, tell our listeners some of the learnings because they're kind of interesting. Yeah. I also was shocked by the answer yeah. to this question. I didn't even want to put this question in, to be honest, because I thought it would be so few responses, right? Affirming that there is a four-day work week or that they're considering it, but full on one in 10 employee or businesses in our sample said that they already have a four-day work week, which just sort of blew my mind, right? Because it seems like such a foreign concept. We've only heard headlines about a pilot here or a, yeah. you know, a test program there. Um, but small and medium businesses sort of in the 50 and below size category are kind of at the pointy tip of the spear here, uh, especially right in professional services, which are the companies that we surveyed, um, mm. in, in, you know, they're, they're using this as a talent attraction tool and they're using it as in a way to sort of, I mean, I think honestly increase the flexibility of their employees. Right. Um, and what's really more interesting is that 10% of them are already doing it, but an additional 14% of them are actively in conversations in mm. their company about implementing a four-day work week, right? So, you know, however we are now, we're going to develop that conversation over the next six months, a year, two yeah. years, right? As companies sort of actively consider this and then learn from the experience of yeah. people that are already doing it. Um Businesses with a four-day work week were 20% more likely to really agree that they've sort of gotten the maximum benefit and minimize the negatives out of remote and hybrid work. Um, my personal take on this is that that is that companies that have really clicked in remote and hybrid work structures where trust is high, where accountability is high, where people really have what they need to get their work done in store in terms of tooling and check-ins and documentation and relationship building. A four-day work week is an easy add-on. My take is that a four-day work week is easy to do once you've got that all clicked yeah. in. Because if somebody needs to work that extra day, right, they will, right? And you can trust that they will. And if, you know, nobody needs to do it because we've got everything done, then that's fine too. I don't think that it's a four-day work week enhances the 
outcomes of remote and hybrid work. I think once you've maximized the outcomes of remote and hybrid work, then a four-day work week seems like a really attractive way to attract talent, right? Mm -hmm. And to keep people sort of engaged and sort of provide the full extent of that flexibility. Mm -hmm. That that's that is super interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Very. Yeah. So. Um, so don't be like Mike, go download the report when we put up the show, go, down, <laughs> go, go download the, I probably will actually, because we did a show earlier this week where they had a 92 page report. Yours is not quite as uh, voluminous as that. So it's, it's more bite-sized people can read it. And hopefully by listening, uh, you can hear there's some really interesting findings in, in the report. So um, I would recommend that if if you have a if you have interest in in this and want to learn some good info, especially for if your organization fits the model that that Liz described earlier, um, some really good stuff here to, for HR practitioners to draw on. So, thanks for doing the work. And I, I have two questions in closing. One, so one is. You talked about a team of economists. <laughs> and, and, and so is that you and your and somebody that helps you, or do you guys do I'm just curious what a team of economists looks like in, in composition and doing this kind of report. So that's my first question. Well, there's three of us. We're a small okay. but mighty team of economists. Okay. It's not just me. I'm not, I'm not a team of one. Um, <laughs> but you know, they're economists and they work on so we have sort of structures around economic intelligence and things like pay and hiring and um terminations yeah. and all that stuff. We have a pillar on remote and hybrid and distributed work because honestly, it's the most interesting thing to happen to work since unionization more than a mm -hmm. century ago. Um, and then we also have a sort of pillar on like employee experience, benefits, retention strategies, all of those kinds of things. So we sort of collectively as a team, you know, set a research agenda about what's important to businesses and the people that support them. And then we, then we execute it and then we put it out into the world. Yep. Ironically, I work as Robin knows in the unionized side of things or the union avoidance side of things. And I'm a social scientist trained in poli sci though, but not law because I didn't <laughs> go to law school. I decided to go do real work in HR instead. Um, let's wrap up with any final thoughts that you might have about the report or anything you want to share with our listeners. And then if you could, whatever you're willing to share on how they might get in touch with you on social media or through email or whatever, whatever. I mean, you're not obligated to disclose anything, but anything that you're willing to share would be helpful. Sure. I'm actually going to break that last one, or excuse me, that first one into like one and a half. So one, okay. I want to say, I hope everybody reads the ebook. There's it's tons of documentation and real numbers on a lot of the things that we've talked about. So if you're trying to sort of think through what the ROI is on doing any of these things, I encourage you to do that. Um, the second thing is the thing that we really didn't talk about. And I think it's the flip side of that trust and accountability and autonomy is it's critically important to have good documentation tools and practices. So because remote and hybrid employees spend so much time alone, uh, they can't wait, right. For somebody to get back to them about a bit of contextual knowledge about a project that they're working on or to explain, right, how to do this specific process that's easy and repeatable. Those kinds of things create a lot of friction for remote and hybrid employees, and it impedes their performance. And it also frustrates them to no end, right? Because they're, they've sort of hampered the benefit of flexibility by making them wait for the, the knowledge of somebody else, right? So documentation is actually really sort of like the sleeper, uh, the sleeper strategy for how to really maximize the effectiveness of remote and hybrid work to give employees that structure. So we didn't talk about it, but I really do want to emphasize that that's the flip side of all of that flexibility and autonomy. 
Um, and then last, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm most active on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me at Liz Wilkie and I'll be the only, uh, economist listed who works at Gusto <laughs> with the name Liz Wilkie. I am, I am not yet on any, I'm, I'm technically on Twitter, but as I told somebody yesterday, I have like three followers and one of them is my, uh, deceased grandmother. So I won't have, I don't have a very big Twitter presence and nor do I check it that often. And I'm not yet on TikTok. Okay. Well, pro tip, if you're going to- That would be a good TikTok, right? The yeah, uh, economic stance or something. The yeah. economic stance. Yeah, that would be awesome. No, if, you, if, you're, if, you're a, if you're a relative newbie to Twitter um, and you want to have some sort of presence, I would consider checking out threads because um, it's a very useful, it's, you know, the foot, the Facebook uh, replacement for Twitter, so to speak, or the yeah, whatever, yeah, that's right. but it's, it's a, it's a much nicer platform, at least right now in its infancy. So it, I would, Robin loves it. She spends hours there. And so, anyway, no, not enough, not hours. I, I know I'm joking. That's anyway, all the endorsement thanks. I need. I will have to yeah, check it out. It's worthwhile. It's, it's a little less effective on certain things than Twitter, but if you're newbie, you won't miss them. So no. yeah, it's, it's interesting. And there's a lot of good information there as well. Thanks so much for being our guest today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael and Robin. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I am going to uh, wrap up the show now for our listeners. Thanks very much. We were, as, as you heard, we were with Liz Wilkie, the only economist on LinkedIn who works for Gusto. So she should be easy enough to find if you're trying to look for her. There will be a link to the, to the uh, report in the show notes. You can download it there. And uh, we will be back next week with a couple more guests. I'm going to go ahead and end the show now. So everybody have a great rest of the week. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.